now bring you the Making Much of Jesus podcast featuring the late Dr. Jack Hudson, the founding pastor of the Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now today's edition of the Making Much of Jesus podcast. I want to speak to you tonight on a subject that uh, may be just a little bit shocking to some of you. But I want to bring it because I feel it's something you need to be enlightened on. You see, you have to study these subjects so you'll know what to do. I've learned this also. Many times in a message like this, you do not get the response. And I'm not trying to put a negative view in your mind. But you do not get the response because I feel it's instructed instructed to people and they put it in their minds and in their heart. And the results of it, sometimes they act upon it, at least it helps them. It's a preventative message. I still believe that's the greatest thing that we can do is to prevent people from going into sin. Now tonight, I want to speak to you on uh, what the Lord had to say in the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. I want you to understand his purposes. I want you to understand what it is, and we'll go into it from the word of God. Now, normally, I would turn to the book of Exodus chapter 20, but since the verse is so short, I'll just quote it to you, and then we'll begin by turning to the book of Genesis chapter 2. In the seventh commandment, God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, I want us to look at the basis of it for just a little bit and turn, if you will, and we'll read in just a moment now in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 18. While you're finding your places there, the book of Genesis, the very first book in your Bible, chapter number 2 and verse number 18 is where we'll begin. I want you to understand, and I believe this, I believe a man's first duty, uh, the first duty of the man is is respect for his life. They say that self-preservation is one of the greatest uh, needs in our life. We'll protect our life at any cost. The second thing I believe this is for a man to protect his home. Now, God builds everything on a home. The very first miracle that the Lord performed is when he changed water into wine at the wedding at at Cana of Galilee. The Lord, when he likened his heaven to something that we could enjoy, he likened it to a home. In my father's house are many mansions. He talked about a city, a place where people dwelt. He talks about being safe and secure in his eternal home. Now, a home is what establishes. When the home goes, America goes. And uh, as a home goes, so do the churches. The greatest need today in America is to come back to God in the Bible and in our home. As I mentioned to you this morning about the discipline that's necessary and how uh, we understand parental love and the love called eros or the love for the opposite sex sex, and how it overcomes that of the parental love and how we must overcome that with the motivating factors and so on. Now, I want you to read with me, if you will, in Genesis now chapter 2, we begin reading verse number 18. And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make an helpmate for him. And out of the ground that the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmate for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. You know, I think sometimes it's good to use your spiritual imagination. I believe the Holy Spirit can help you to see things that perhaps are not written here. I think this is one of the sweetest, most sacred writings that you can find. 
I think perhaps sometimes that every married person or every unmarried person, as far as that goes, maybe should get alone somewhere and read this. And when he re gets to the end of it, and he brought her unto man. And I think you ought to ask the Lord to help you to understand what it must have been like. I have said on many occasions that the very first nuptial vows or the first wedding was performed by God himself. I I'd like to have seen the look on Adam's face when he looked and saw a woman. I would have liked to have seen the look on her face when she saw her husband that was to be. I would have liked to have seen those people as they met one another for the first time. How long Adam was upon the face of the earth without a wife, I have no way of knowing. It could have been a few months. It could have been a few years. It could have been a few hundred years. So far in as I know, it could have been a few millenniums. I simply do not know how long Adam was upon the face of the earth. I know that God looked at man and said, man is not an entity within himself. He needs a helpmate. He needs one of the opposite sex, someone that's a little different, someone that's as much alike as God can make them and yet different. And when God brought Eve unto them, I don't know where he introduced them formally. I don't know where they looked at one another and got to know each other a little while. That is, you know, sat down and talked about some things. And maybe Adam took around and said, you see that animal over there with that tall neck and those spots on it? And, and he said, I, I bet you never would guess what I named that. And she said, no, I, I don't have any idea. You see, I just got here. You see, she was just one day old, and so was he, and, uh, or at least as far as God was concerned. And he said, uh, I've called that a giraffe. And she said, my, that, that's a good name. And he'd walk around, and, and maybe he'd look at her, and maybe, I don't know, maybe instant, and maybe the minute they saw each other, they were already in love. I don't know. But God brought her unto the man. And then I want you to notice. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. You know, when you read that and you read the sweetness of it, therefore shall a man leave his, wife, his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You know, when you see this and you realize what Hollywood has done with marriage and what, uh, oh, some of the writers and the magazines have done with it, you, you read this and wonder if they're talking about the same thing. This is something for life. This is something that God brings a man unto a woman and joins them together very carefully and very tenderly. It's a love that will survive anything. It's a love that will last forever when God brings a man unto a woman and brings them together and they cleave one to another unto the Lord. It's the most precious, it's the most wonderful thing on the face of this earth. That's why you ought to defy any of this playboy type philosophy. That's why you ought to defy anything, the soap opera type of life that's brought into your living room by the means of television. That's why you ought to turn away from the quote true story magazines. You ought to turn away from anything that takes away from the sweetness for the dignity that God has given to a marriage. There is nothing. You know, I was thinking not long ago when I mentioned the brother Brooks, I think, I wonder sometimes when we marry people if we shouldn't, we say until death do you part. And yet, when you're married in the eyes of God, I don't even think that separates it because we'll be together again in heaven. I know that we'll be there with the Lord, neither male nor female, and neither bond nor free, and, and so on. But I, I wonder if maybe we're not maybe limiting it to just too short a time. When God brings a man unto a woman and the two come together, oh, what a blessed union it really is. You need to understand. You see, you need this for love. You need it because I think God made us where there's a certain amount of love has to be out of us. Do you know why people many times are filled with hate? 
It's because they can't get the love out of them. They don't have an object. You need someone to love more than you need someone to love you. You have to have someone to love. Now, love is reciprocal. That is, love begets love. And as you give out that love, it begets love. It's something like a magnet that pulls love back into it. And a husband and wife that are brought together for the Lord, it's a reciprocal thing. In other words, like a magnetic power. You send out a pound of love, it draws back. But it always draws back love, a pound and a half. And that pound and a half draws back two pounds. And that two pound draws back two and a half pounds. And it just becomes something like this. You need someone to love then you need someone that you can respect and someone who respects you. You remember in our word study last week, we learned about the word of being respectable. And I said that when you, if you're married, if you don't have the greatest respect in the world, husbands, if you don't respect your wife above any woman that lives, your marriage is already in trouble. It's not going to be in trouble. It's already in trouble. If there's any man that you respect more than you do your husband, already your marriage is in trouble. Among anything else, God says, show respect one to another. And then I believe that I believe that in this thing, God wants you to be friends. Did you know that? I see a lot of husbands and wives that don't even look like they're friends to me. Now, forgive me, I, I can't stand a mushy preacher. If I hear a preacher getting up all the time talking about how much he loves his wife and his wife loves him, I always wonder, you know, what's going on. If something's, you know, if he's trying to cover up for something. But I'll be honest when I say this, and I'll try not to make another reference. The best friend I've got in this world, the best friend in this world, the best friend I've had is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the best friend I've got in this world, these men on this platform are my friends. Uh, you folk are my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. I've got friends I believe would give me anything or everything they have. I really believe that from the bottom of my heart. I believe that. Many of them in other times and at various times have done things for me that only friends could do. But I want to tell you the greatest friend I've got in this world is my wife. I'd rather be with her than anybody on the face of this earth, and I'm not trying to be mushy. I'm saying that God created a man and a woman that they can love one another and respect one another and be companions one to another. Then I believe the Lord made them that they might have that unity. Look what he said in verse number 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now you know there's something very practical here and there's some good preaching here. If, if I wasn't so tired tonight, could rear back and raunt and snort and walk back and forth. But listen, therefore shall a man leave his wife, uh, father and his mother. Have you ever noticed that there's not a place in the Bible that ever told a woman to leave her mother and father? Do you know why? When God made a woman, God made her with a desire down in her heart from the time she's able to walk, she's wanting to build a home. Did you know that? That's why you young men don't have a chance. I mean, you're doing, there's no chance for you. Uh, they know that in order to have a home, they've got to have a husband. And they start when they're little bitty girls, two and three years old, and they start building a little playhouse and have a little doll. And they fix a little bottle. And they fix a little stove. And they fix supper. And they have an imaginary father. And he comes in at supper. And they fix everything. And they go on and get bigger and bigger. And as soon as they're able, they'll go to every wedding. And they'll sit there and look at it. And they're thinking, no, I don't want that kind of dress. But I tell you, that's what I want my tenants to wear. And from the time they're about 12 on, they'll go. And they'll sit there and cry. I see, I conduct an awful lot of weddings, and I look out in their faces, and the 13, 14-year-old girls are crying, you know. And I, I think, you know, they're waiting on that day. They're looking forward to it. God wants it to be something that's real. And haven't you ever thanked God uh, of how he arranged this? Now, a man sometimes and a woman, man uh, doesn't want to leave home as readily as a woman because he's pretty much happy. A woman is the homemaker. She's the one that makes the home. 
And yet, God, have you ever thought about it? Man has great big old hands. You ever thought about why a man has whiskers and a woman doesn't? It's a very practical thing. Uh, God put whiskers on a man's face that when he goes out in the cold and the elements, you know, he can protect his face if he needs to. And uh, God gives him big hands that he can work. And God gives him bigger muscles that he can go out and cut the wood and carry in the things and do the heavy work and things of that sort. God fixed a man like that. And God gave him a big voice, big gruff voice, so that he can yell out across the elements and call people to work you know, and, and uh, say to his worker, I need this or that. Or if he's on the bow of a ship and he needs to call out, God gave him a bigger voice and a deeper voice so that it can carry like that. And when God made a woman, he said, now, I'm going to make me a little baby first. I, you said, no, he didn't either. Made woman first. Now, how do you know? You weren't there and I were, wasn't either. God told us about the woman first, but he didn't tell us about the baby. And uh, God said, now, I need me a little baby to, uh, you know, to kind of keep that family together and to keep them loving. That's the reason I can't see abortion. Aren't you glad that Eve didn't have an abortion and killed that little baby before it was born? And God fixed it up. And, and uh, I, I, I think in my mind how God must have done it. I believe God stood there one day just about the time uh, daylight was breaking when the golden hen of earth began to open up in the sunlight and God said I, I'm going to make a little baby and put down there with him and God did and uh, he, he reached up and got some of that gold and he took it and he made the hair with it and he reached over right at that blue line right at the horizon he got some of that and he colored her eyes and God looked down in the morning light and he saw the dew glistening on a rose and he took some of that rose and he colored the little lips and got them just exactly the right color and then God looked out on a desert where the sun was setting and he saw that beautiful sunset and he saw it as the shadows began to fall and it got just the right shade and God took that and colored its little cheeks and God looked at it and said, my, that's just nice. And then God said, now, uh, let me see, I need something that'll make it love that uh, mother and dad and make, take care of it, make them take care of it when it's uh, sick at night and can't take care of itself. And God looked and fixed and, and uh, God looked over there and he saw some little sheep playing little lambs as they were playing and God took some of that playfulness out of those little lambs and put it in the heart of that little baby so it'd gurgle and goo and kick its little feet and wave its little hands and we'd love it and goo with it and talk back to it. And then God said, now they need a little voice that's just somehow just more precious than anything. And God listened down. and he has a copyright on all the songs that the birds sing anyway. And God listened till he heard one that sang on just the right cue. And God took a little of that song out of the bird's throat and put it in the little baby's mouth and fixed it so it could sing. And then God looked at it and said, I believe it's about ready. Now he said, now wait a minute. I'm not sure that's enough to make people get up in the middle of the night and walk the floors. And God said, it needs one more thing. And maybe even God thought a minute. He said, I know what it needs. And he looked down on the earth and he couldn't find anything good enough. And so he reached in his, to his own big heart and God took out a little pinch of his love and put it down in that little old baby. And the little old baby can look up without even talking. And her mother and dad said, God bless you, honey. You're not but two days old, but I'd give my life for you. Now, now nobody but God could have done that, you see. And then God said, now, I need somebody to take care of that. And he said, now that old man with his old rough hands, he can't take care of that little baby. Why? Why, he'd wear its skin out, and he can't do that. And he said uh, he could hold it up against his face, and his old whiskers would scratch. He, God said, I've got to fix me a woman a little different. See, God already knew he was going to make that little baby. And he took a woman, and he just fixed her where her face would be just as smooth where he could rub a little tender skin of a baby up against it and it wouldn't hurt it. And God took her hands and made them real delicate and tender and made the palms of them just as soft as they could possibly be, where they could rub that little baby's face or anoint its body with oil or whatever and it wouldn't rub it. And then God said, now, 
That old man's got such a gruff voice to holler out across there and so thinks he can hear him. And God took her and just turned it down like the volume on a radio until it just got just as tender and sweet until she could sing a lullaby songs to that little baby and God got it all fixed up. Now, don't you let that Hollywood crowd confuse you on that thing. That's the way God fixed it. That's the way God wants it. God doesn't want you women in hard hats and overalls and riveting machines in your hand out there saying, equal rights amendment. God's given you a job and highly exalted you above anything this world can ever give you. And don't you sell it out, brother, for a position like that. And you hold that little thing up to your breast and say, oh, thank God, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God says, I want you to see and understand that. Get it in your mind. Now, you need to remember that. Now, then God fixed them for um, propagation. Look at verse number 28. Uh, when the Lord, oh, pardon me, let's see. Genesis 1, 28. Listen to what the Lord said to them. And God blessed them, that is the man and the woman. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon, upon the earth. You see? God says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the face of the earth. Now, that doesn't sound much like this abortion law today, does it? No. God says, I want you to have some precious children. And I want you to understand it. You see, God explains this. This is why sex was created, that it might be the highest, the most intimate love that man and woman can know. It's also so for the propagation of the human race, you see. The union of male and female, you know, and when each one of them willing to reproduce themselves by their children. Have you ever had people walk up and say, now, you know, it's got its mother's eyes, but it's got its father's chin, or it's got its father's height, or its mother's, uh, you know, this or that and the other. And what they're saying is, this is what love has produced. A man and a woman loving one another have come together as one, and now they've reproduced themselves, not one or the other, but they've reproduced themselves in that little boy or girl. Oh, I'd hate to have it on my conscience, wouldn't you? That took anything like this. And God based sex on love, not on physical attraction, and God fixed it. Then I want you to see not only did God create man and woman, then God created, the Lord created the home. You see, the home begins with marriage. It always begins that way. It has to be that way. God instituted that way, and you can't ever change it. Now, I don't care what this world says. I don't care how many people that go and just begin to live together. It doesn't matter about that at all. It'll never change God's rule. It won't change the fact that you'll stand before God and give an account. Just as surely as your name's what it is, you're going to give an account. Now, marriage is the most sacred of all human relationships. There is nothing. It's the most second, most important decision that you'll ever make on the face of this earth is the choice of your husband or wife. The most important decision is trusting Christ as your Savior. The second most important thing that you'll ever do is choose your husband or wife. It's the most sacred thing. Now, I want you to look for a minute, if you will, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24. Look what the Word of God says. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, brother, I want you to understand that God means for life as far in as course as it's humanly possible and as far in as God himself will allow and work. The thing we need to do is be sure that you understand these things. This is why I like for people to know it, for parents to know it. They can teach their children and boys and girls here can understand it. Listen to what it says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, and verse number 3. 
The Pharisees also came unto him, that is unto Jesus, testing him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now may I stop there a minute? Now I want you to think about that a minute. He made them male and female. The world today is trying to make a person become unisex, that is, neither male nor female. They're trying to get the men to look like women and the women to look like men. Now, God said from the beginning he wanted them to be a male and he wanted them to be a female. Do you believe that means looks as well as actions and as well as the physical being side of them is concerned? I believe it does. God wants a man to act like a man, to dress like a man, and God wants a woman to look like a woman and act like a woman and be thank God she is a woman. God created them man, male, and female. The devil has tried to mix them up and fix them to where you can't tell the difference. Now notice. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore there are no more twain, that is two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now I want you to think in your mind, if you will, and get it there so that you'll never forget what God is saying. God says, I want you to know that I made a male and female. I want you to know that I made it so that, man, that male and female, when they fall in love, divinely attracted by the Holy Spirit of God, and when they're drawn together as of God, then he says they become one. Now, I want you to remember that because it makes a point in my sermon a little later on. They become one in Christ Jesus' eyes. Not two, but one. When God looks at a family, he, he knows, obviously, as individuals, a man and a wife, but God looks at the family as being one. He sees one. Now, the father has authority, of course. The mother has position that she must fulfill, but God says they're one. Now, watch it. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, that's very, very important to remember. Now, I want you to know that marriage is divine, and therefore is joined together for life, for God said it. He says, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, I want you to get this, and I believe from the bottom of my heart. I want you to listen to me carefully, because again, it will help me to make a point in a minute. I've had many weddings, only God knows how many. I don't keep a record. How many, I don't know. I've married people for these 21 years nearly now here in this church, and I've, uh, I've seen them uh, good and bad and in essence and indifferent. I've seen marriages that have just blossomed that were born of God and some of the others maybe haven't. I'm simply saying that to say this. I have watched this thing, and I believe from the bottom of my heart when God brings a man and woman together, I do not believe that in the eyes of God they're married when I pronounce them man and wife. I believe they're married when they know one another in a sexual relationship after their marriage. Now it's important that you remember what I'm saying because it has to do with the topic I discussed this morning about the world's attitude, the liberal attitude on premarital sex. They equate it now with love. They're simply saying, now, if you love one another, it's all right to have premarital sex. That is, if you just love one another. God says there's something that has to come before that. There must be love. There must be the marriage. For when you come together as man and wife, that's when you're joined in the eyes of God. 
Now, it's a point because I want you to see that. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, that's what the Bible says. Now, I want you to see, there are only two ways in that a marriage can be broken. I'm going to show you from the Word of God so that you, you will understand, so that you'll know the only two ways that a marriage can be broken according to the Word of God. Now, look first, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 39. Only two ways that a marriage can be broken. Chapter 7, verse number 39. Now, Paul is giving us a lot of understanding here in chapter 6, comes over to chapter 7. He establishes a lot of things instructive. You ought to learn them. You ought to really saturate yourself with them. But I'm just lifting one verse now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 39. That's page 1218 in your school for your Bibles. The wife is bound by the law, that is the law of God, as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, I want you to get it. There are two things that God is saying. Now, I want you to notice why it says, if, a, if, a, if the wife is bound. You know why he said that? Because most times a man dies first. Most times. Uh, our, e even our insurance figures today prove this overwhelmingly so that the man usually dies first. Now there's a many a woman that's wondering, they're trying to determine what to do. Should they live a lonely life? Should they, would it be wrong in heaven? Would they meet their former husband in heaven? Would they have been unfaithful in, in essence to him? I want you to see what God is saying. Now here is the authority of God's word. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty. God said she is absolutely free of the marriage vows. That is, uh, as I say in the marriage to them, and will you forsaking all others, take thee only unto thyself so long as you both shall live? They say I do or I will. And God is saying, I want you to know you're free of that. I want you to know that contract, as far as I'm concerned, has been severed. It's broken. When your husband died, widows, God says that the bond is broken. Now listen to what he says. She is at liberty to be married to whom she will as long as they're a Christian. That's what it means, only in the Lord. As long as they are Christians, she can marry anybody that she wants to. As long as they're Christians. Now, God says that death severs that relationship and they can be married again. I think sometimes that people are mixed up here. I think it develops a guilt complex. I think they think when they'll get to heaven that they'll walk up and meet their former wife and here they have this present life. Uh, they, they have an allegiance and great love and respect and admiration and they wonder what it's going to be like. And which means another message, but you need to understand what it's going to be like in heaven. As I said earlier, we'll neither be male nor female. We'll neither be bond or free, neither be Jew nor Gentile, but we shall be one in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that the former things shall be remembered no more. I don't believe it means that we won't still know one another. I don't believe it means that at all. But it means that it will not be the ties that we had down here. It's legally broken. Now, brother, when a contract between two people are broken, I get this. It's broken here on the face of the earth. And I believe the person that's in heaven, for that's where people go when they die who've trusted Christ as a Savior. They're with the Lord. I believe that willingly, and I believe that, that uh, judicially speaking, that the contract even in heaven is broken and well understood by the one that's with the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? I believe that a person 
A lot of times down here, people with a little bit of a jealous nature because of insecure will say to their wife, if you get married again, I'll haunt you. You've heard people say that laughingly. Boy, you better not get married again. You better not get some man spend my insurance money. But brother, I want you to know that when you get to heaven, that will not be your feeling. For God Almighty is going to break that contract here in the mind of that person as well as in the mind of that when it's in heaven. They'll have no legal binding. They'll have no moral binding. God says the contract will be broken at death. Now keep that in your mind. I want you to understand it. There's only one other thing that will do it. Turn back now to Matthew chapter 19. I want you to see it. Only two things. Death is one of them. That's pretty obvious. But also it means that you can be married to whom you will, but only in the Lord. Now I want you to listen. In Matthew chapter 19, page 1025. I'm coming back again now. Let's start at verse number 6. Matthew chapter 19, verse number 6. Wherefore they are no more twain, that is two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now if God separates it by death, the contract then is null and void. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, now remember who this is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who has all power in heaven and in earth. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now I want you to stop there. Now do you remember the other place I read you? It said, if a woman... Be widowed. That is, if the husband. Here he's saying, now, if a man has a wife. Now, the opposite is exactly true. That is, if a woman has a husband. It means that if in the marriage, one of the partners. Now, watch what I'm saying. Look at verse number 9. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife. Now, you see, that those commas, that comma after the word wife, and again after, for, after fornication, are what we call parenthetic. In other words, it's a parenthetic portion. It means that you could read the other part, and it would still make sense. I'll read it like that. I'm not going to put it in there, except it be for fornication. I'm not going to put it in there. I'm going to read it. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Beloved, I want you to know, if it were not for that parenthetic portion, there would be only one way that a person could have, that is, if their wife died and they married another, they would be living in adultery, according to the Word of God, if it were not for that. But God put it in there. He made the one exception, except it be for fornication. Now, here's what God's saying. I want you to get this in your heart. If you've ever let the Holy Spirit of God speak anything to you, I want you to listen to it. Don't you turn to it. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians for just a minute because I want to read the two verses together. I want you to see how severe, I want you to see the judgment of God. If you fear God, if you understand what God is saying, I want you to listen. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. I'm reading verse number 18. The Bible says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Now you listen. What do you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is, in, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? The Bible comes down here and it says, Know you in verse number 15, And know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. 
What, know ye not that ye which are joined to a harlot as one body, for two saith he shall be one flesh? God is saying that the most wicked sin on the face of this earth that can be done in our bodies would be the sin of adultery. Now, since I said to you in my belief in what God said, it's not when I say I pronounce you man and wife, but when that man and woman who love one another have honorably come before an altar and they said before God in this assembled company, they want to be united together in holy matrimony. And when they know one another is man and wife, God makes them one and God makes a heavenly contract. Now that contract is broken if one or the other dies. But I want to tell you something, men and women, listen to me. You better get that playboy philosophy out of your mind and you better get the word of God deep down in your soul. For if you go out and if you're unfaithful to your wife or you wives are unfaithful to your husbands, you are, have broken the marriage vows in the eyes of God. And according to the word of God, a man or woman can leave their husbands or wives unless reconciliation can be made, of course, and forgiveness is made, which should be done if the person is repentant, obviously. But I'm simply so showing you what the Bible has to say. God said it can cut the marriage in two. It can sever it. It can break the contract. God said, I won't honor either party. We're living in a day today where men go around boasting about their conquest. We're living in a day today where women are living in licentiousness and lewdness and things that almost make you sick to your stomach. But beloved, I want you to know it's contrary to the word of God. And I want you to know it's no wonder that America's in the condition it's in the night because of the broken home. Did you know the marriage rate now is not one in four. It's lower than that. It's nearly one out of every three is ending in divorce. By the same token, among people that go to church across America, there's only one out of every 500 that are getting divorced. What a difference. It's because they've broken God's law. And God said that if you do this, you're destroying the temple of God. You need to put it in its right proportion. It isn't a thing. I guess we're all weak and I guess we all made mistakes. And I guess God made us this way. And after all, how can we resist? Brother, you read the, what it says there and God says flee fornication. Now get it in your mind. I want you to see what God had the penalty for it. In the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, I want to read to you from Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10. Here's what God said to do. I want you to listen to because I want to make another point. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You know, we're living in an age today where it seems like the, it, there's a double standard. The woman is the one that's the victim, they say. The woman is the one that is talked about and the man seems to go free. But beloved, I want you to know it isn't so and never has been in God's eye. God says, I want you to bring the woman and I want you to bring the man and I want you them both to be stoned to death. Now, brother, this is what we call the first mentioned principle, though it's practiced all through the Old Testament. Can you see it in your mind? Here's a man and a woman and they start a little giggling thing together. It always starts like that, this giggling. And then they start a little psychological romance. It always starts like that. It begins then with telephone calls, if that's what they are, and kind of a giggling little thing. And just, to, you know, where everything's all right, nothing's really wrong. Then the first thing you know, there's an encounter. It's like a dynamite uh, a fuse like this and a match burning over here. It's all right, unless the wind blows. If the wind blows the wrong way and ignites that, and the first thing you know, in the midst of, of lust and passion, 
Brother, God says, I want you to know your marriage vows are broken. In the Old Testament, they had dragged a man and a woman. Their husbands and their wives would be standing over there perhaps with their children. They'd take them and put them down perhaps on their knees. I'm not sure. They'd reach over and pick up stones, maybe with tears in their eyes, but it was God's law. It was God's word. And they'd take stones and begin to beat them on their bodies and beat them on their heads until their bodies were dead, obviously, and they were bloody, and they'd take their bodies out. And brother, every time somebody would walk by and see those crosses there on those tombstones, they'd think twice. We're living in an age today where we're mocking God's law, brother, not respecting as it was. God said in the Old Testament, take them both out and kill them. And some of you go around bragging on them. What fools you are. What fools you are in the eyes of God. Now, God says in the New Testament, Paul comes over in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, and God gives you there what it is, and it's even worse in the New Testament to my opinion, that it is in the old. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators. Notice what comes first. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Shall inherit the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, they said, take them and kill their bodies. In the New Testament, God said, if you do it, it's going to cost you your soul. I'm not talking about a saved person being lost. I'm talking about the playboy generation. I'm talking about the philosophy of this rock and roll crowd with their groupies. I'm talking about the rock and roll crowd that does all these licentious things and as I said last Sunday, to my shame, that children of Christians go to them and sit there and listen to that suggestive remark and see those displays of, of imitations and all these other things that I'll not go into tonight. God says it's worthy of death. I want you to know it's costing their soul and they're going to hell because of their sin, because they've never trusted Christ. Then he goes on to say uh, in this, And such were some of you, but now you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus said you had to be saved from such a sin. You had to be cured of it, as I mentioned to you this morning briefly. There in John 8, when the, Lord, uh, the, the woman was brought before the Lord in the sin of adultery, he said, Go and sin no more. He said it was a sin, and he said uh, it was not to do it no more. I'll tell you why God holds it in such uh, high regard in the sense of high on the catalog of all the things that can happen. God says murder is to kill a man. And God said thou shalt not kill. Brother, we're all appalled when somebody takes a gun or a knife or some instrument and kills a person. We say how could they do it? But I'll be honest with you. Listen to me now. I believe that I'd rather stand before God I believe if I were a man of the world, I'd rather stand before God having killed a man with a gun or with a knife or with some other instrument. Because, brother, when God says when you commit adultery, you kill a home. There's a wife and families. As recently as this day, I dealt with a lady. If she's here tonight, nobody will ever know of whom I'm speaking. And she said with tears coursing down her face, and she couldn't keep them mopped off. It was a constant or a race, seeing which side had to, and finally she just put it this way and that way. And she said, my husband is just living in adultery. 
I'm going to have to leave him. I'm going to have to try to make a home for my children. And she'd wipe the tears from her eyes down this way. And I sat there and this message worked its way into my soul as I thought about it. Brother, if he'd have killed a man, that was one man dead and out of the way, but he's killing a family. Now, brother, don't tell me God's not going to judge it. And I don't care what Mrs. Ford says about it, and I don't care what uh, Playboy says about it, or what the world says about it. God's going to judge it. I quote Hebrews uh, 13, 4 again. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But now listen. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Now if there is a God, and if there is a Bible, the Bible is true, adulterers are going to be judged either in this life or in the life to come. You see, the thing about it, it makes it such low. It does something that nothing else can do. It, I, think of, I think of nothing. I think of nothing of any writing, any portrayal in the television, any portrayal on the movie screen. I know of nothing that lowers the ideal of a woman any lower than the sin of adultery. I know of nothing that will lower a person in anybody else's eyes than a person guilty of it. I know of nothing that will do to the home what the sin of adultery will do. I know of nothing that will hurt the heart of God any more than this. When God has created and made so sweet the plan for a home and the plan for a husband and a wife to be together. Then I want you to see that God has created the penalties. I'm going to read to you for a moment out of the Word of God. I'm going to read to you from the book of Proverbs chapter number 6. Listen what the Bible has to say. Proverbs chapter number 6. When God is speaking to us and telling us about the, about the warnings. That's page 676. If you want to turn to it, Proverbs chapter 6. For by means of a whorish man, a uh, woman, pardon me. By means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife... Whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whosoever committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. I want you to listen to me. Do you know what would happen if I'd take red coals? Let's think of something you're familiar with. Look at me now and think. Let's think of a barbecue, you know, that with the bricks and, the, you know, the, the charcoal. It's red hot. I reach down in there, maybe, let's just say for the sake of clarity, I've got on some asbestos gloves. I reach down and grab me a handful of those red hot coals, and I put them in my bread, and I pull my coat around them. In a few minutes, I begin to scream to the top of my voice, and you pull away, and you pull them off, because now they're sticking to my skin, and the, you can smell the stench of scorching, scorching skin, and my, what a horrible shape my chest would be in. You rush me to the hospital and they say he's got second or third degree burns. I'm put in an intensive care unit and they began to put IVs and feed me because actually what is mounting my body fluids are leaking away. My life is leaking away. Maybe they'll get me over it. Maybe in several months after skin grafts. Maybe after they work on me, there I am. But any time I pull back my coat, there's the scars. God said exactly what fire coals will do to your body. The sin of adultery will do to your soul. Listen to me right now. If you're guilty of the sin of adultery, I guarantee you can remember every detail of it. It's like a fire burned into your soul. 
It'll make a scorch. It'll make a something that you won't get over. Brother, you can come to the blood of Jesus Christ and be forgiven. There is a divine penalty and God will forgive it never to remember it against you anymore. But it'll still be in your mind. A man that even thinks of being unfaithful to God and to his children and to his wife, according to God's word, I'm saying it, he lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Beloved, it's a horrible thing when you think about it. I don't know of anything that'll break hearts anymore. I don't know of anything that'll produce any more guilt. Look in verse 35. He that not regardeth any ransom, or he's talking about now the man trying to make atonement, he will not regard any ransom, neither will he give, uh, he, neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. Did you hear what he say? God said, little plague you. God said it'll stay with you. You can go to the Lord and in divine repentance and confession have it blotted out of your record. God won't remember it against you anymore. But God said though you give many gifts, though you do many things, it'll stay in your heart. Folk, I'm trying to warn you what God has to say about it. I'm trying to warn you why the question mark was put behind God's word when Mrs. Ford sat there and tried to act like a liberated woman and say, in essence, I would not be surprised if my daughter came and said I was having an affair, which as I again interpreted this morning as meaning uh, someone living or in cohabitation with a person of the opposite sex without being married. I want you to see what God has to say about it, not what the world says. Not what they say down to the service station or in the barbershop or wherever you might congregate where the dirty jokes are told. I'm talking about what God has to say about it. And God says it burns like a, it'll have the scars on you that will not, that cannot, that never will go away. They never will. They never will. They'll stay there and haunt you and haunt you and haunt you and haunt you. I was away in a meeting one time years ago. You wouldn't know where it was if I told you. You wouldn't know who it was. So don't spend any time trying to think. I had a man came to me in, in the meeting. I saw him there with a Bible under his arm in the mornings. He was there again at night. Two or three days went by. He was there every day. For some reason, I don't know, I never got a chance to talk to him. Folk were kind, came up, autographing Bibles and so on. About the third day, he came to me and he said, I wonder if I could take you home today. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I, I, it was a good little ways to the motel. And so I got in his car. It was snow on the ground. It was cold. And we got in. We talked a little bit about that. And he said, I need to come into your room a little bit and talk to you if I can. I said, well, fine. Come on in. So he did. He sat down and he said, Brother Hudson, you don't know me. But he said, I was a pastor in a neighboring town. And he sat there for a little while and brokenhearted and with tears in his eyes. He told me briefly of an encounter. Lady had come to him for counseling. He'd gotten involved. He said it started off very innocent, didn't think everything had ever come of it. He said, I'm not blaming anybody but myself. And he said, but I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And he said, Brother Hudson, I, I've confessed it to God, but I, he said, I can't get it out of my mind. He said, if I get up to preach, it bothers me, and I can't, I just don't have any power in my life. I talked with a man the best I could. I thought about what it said over in the book of Proverbs. And in my mind, somehow, as I sat there and talked to him, I could see the scars on his soul. And I thought, my God, man, you'll go to the grave with those scars on your soul. I'll be honest with you, before, and God being my witness, one of the sweetest men I've ever met in my life. I know him. I could call his name in an instant. Again, you wouldn't know him if I'd call his name. He was on the mission field. What mission field's incident? But he was on the mission field. While he was there through a series of circumstances that 
Maybe it shouldn't have happened, but it did. He got involved. He got involved. He did the honorable thing. I don't know of a man that could have been more honorable. He admitted his guilt. He went before the mission board and demanded to be taken back off of the field. He's back. He's gone back. I, if I'm anywhere within 100 miles, he'll drive to a meeting where I am. One night he sat and told me the story very briefly with a heartbreak that you could feel and sense. I didn't sleep good that night. I woke up several times in the night and I said, Oh God, if I ever get so weak and anemic that I'm afraid to preach against that sin, let me remember the look on that brother's eyes. That boy had a Bible college education. He had been on the mission field. He made a mistake. But brother, my God, what he paid for it. He's not used in the ministry. He wins souls. He reads his Bible. He prays. I, I, I don't know how many times he's apologized to his wife. She's a very sweet, very gracious person. She forgave him. And so far as I know, it's not discussed in their home. Uh, you go there. He's one of the sweetest spirited men I ever know. And I thought to myself, I would to God, I could almost bear his burden for him. And he's such a sweet spirited man. I want to tell you something, folk. You'll know what God means when he says, you better run. You better flee fornication. I say this to the glory of God, and God forbid that you'd think I'm boasting on myself, for I'm flesh like anybody else. But, brother, I learned a rule a long time ago, and you ladies know it. I never shake hands with a lady over 60 seconds. I don't, I don't talk to them. I don't counsel them without my secretaries in the next office. And they start sometimes in rather grotesque details, and I say, I understand, I understand. I'll be honest with you, I'm scared to death of women. I am. I am because I know my weaknesses and I know my flesh. And oh my God, I don't want, I don't want coals of remorse burning in my soul and I don't want to go before God with these things. I want to tell you something, folk. You better get your minds off of this filth that this world's got to offer. It'll flame and then, it, it'll flame and ensnare you and hook you, then laugh at you and make you a fool. It'll ruin you. It'll ruin you. I'm thinking of that boy tonight somewhere sitting in church with his Bible. I don't doubt at all. I don't doubt at all. I'd be nearly willing to bet my life that man's in church tonight. I can see him as he's sitting there. I can, I can see him in my mind. Somebody's preaching to him and his eyes are looking up. And he'd say to you, oh my God, don't get in the sin. Then I want you to see this. But thank God the Lord created an escape. Anything that in the Bible that God condemns, God created an escape. God created a way that we can get by. Look what it has to say. In Matthew, it says, don't entertain lustful thoughts. Don't get them in your mind. Don't do them. The book of James says, when lust has conceived. Now, lust is, is thinking. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Now, when lust hath conceived, you know how it begins? By looking and by thinking. The devil cannot get to you unless you're willing to think about it. He, you see, through your eye gate and ear gates, the only access he has to you, what you see and what you hear. The Bible says that Lot vexed his righteous soul by what he saw and by what he heard. Now you watch these filthy things and listen to the filthy things. It's going to get to you and it's going to when lust, when it is conceived. Now that's exactly the same word we use when we talk about a baby being born. It's the same thing about an egg. It's like an egg. And when 
Lust is finished, it bringeth forth death. Now, when lust is conceived, that is, when, it, when you get it in your mind, it lies there dormant. It'll begin to think about it. And you begin to wonder if maybe you could get it. You want to see how far you... It's like somebody standing on the edge of a precipice. You want to see how far you can get to the edge without getting over it. And you lean over and look, and you want to see how far you can go. And the first thing you know, there's that little tiny time that the devil can get to you in your weakness. And there you go. Now, God says then when, when that sin becomes reality, it'll bring forth death, spiritual death, death to your testimony, death to all these other things. Now, don't provoke lustful thoughts. Run from them. Get away from them. Stay away from them. Don't talk about them. Then the thing to do is come to the Lord Jesus Christ above anything else. Come to him. Come to him and let him be your savior. And this is the end of the law. The Bible says in Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law of them that do them. Oh, he is our redeemer. My last verse to you is found over near the last book of the Bible. Turn there for a minute to the little book of Jude. And uh, let's see what God has there that can kind of help you tonight and, and give you some spiritual guidance and, uh, and warning and uh, help, you to, help you to get it in your mind. Let's see. I'm sorry. I was turning here the wrong way now. Yep, there it is. Uh, now look, Jude chapter 1, verse number 24. That's page 1329 in your school field Bibles. Oh, I wish you'd listen to this. This is like a vaccination. This is like a vaccination for polio. It's like uh, taking your children and saying, now, Doctor, I want you to inoculate my boy or girl. I don't want them to have typhoid fever or um, a whooping cough, things of that sort. So they give them inoculation. They become immune to them, you see. Now, God's got a shot like that. Here it is. Listen. Uh, in, in, the, in Jude chapter 1, verse number 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Now, the word falling there is the Greek word skandalou. S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-U. Skandalou. It's for the word, the Greek word from which we get our word scandal. Now unto him who's able to keep you from scandal. Now, you read that and say, that's wonderful. But I wonder if you did read it. Did you hear it? Listen what it says. Now unto him who is able to keep you from scandal. He didn't say that he would automatically, as a part of your salvation, keep you from scandal. That's why Christians fall into it. He said he was able to do it. If you'll trust him to do it. If you'll come to him and say, Lord Jesus... I know that I live in this flesh, and I know this is flesh, it's blood, it lusts after things of the world. I know that. And Lord, I know that I am no better than anybody else. I know that I could be tempted and drawn into sin because that's what the devil would want me to do. But it would end any hopes I've ever had of serving God. It would be like taking fire into my bosom and leaving great scars. I'd never get over it until I stood before my Heavenly Father. I'd be like that missionary that I'm talking about. I'd be like that pastor that I met briefly. I'd be like, oh, you'd say, oh, my God, I don't want to do that. He says, now, now unto him who's able to keep you from scandal. He's able to do it. But you need to commit your life unto him. You need to commit your morals unto him. You need to come and say, Lord Jesus, I know that in myself that I'm not capable of maintaining this flesh. I want to commit it to you, Lord. I want you to take it, and I want you to help me, and I want you to fix it so I'll never bring a reproach upon my Lord and Savior and upon my parents and upon my friends 
and upon my wife and precious children. I never want to do it. Lord, I want to commit myself to you day and night that you'll keep it from me. Oh, I believe that we ought to do it. When you think about this, that we're going to be judged, God said, that it's like a man taking fire into his bosom. The scars will always be there. Now let me say this to you. Lest the devil trick you, some of you, as 1 Corinthians 6 may have said, and such were some of you, but now you're washed. Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that it cleanses you from all sin? That's not what I have reference to tonight. I'm talking about the preventative side of it. I've tried to show you what it is. I've tried to show you the penalty of it. And I've tried to show you perhaps more briefly, but I've tried to show you a way around it, the prevention side of it. It's committing it to Jesus. Tonight, I'm going to ask you, married people and young people alike, I'm going to ask you to come down here and commit your life unto the Lord. I'm not asking you to admit that you've done anything. By you coming down here doesn't mean that you are guilty. It just means that you don't want to be guilty and that you want God to help you while there's time to help you. I wonder if I could bring that missionary, that sweet man, one of the sweetest men I know, if I could bring him here tonight and say, Brother, you say it, God help you. I can't say it to these people. I believe when he got through saying, My God, men, don't settle the rest of your life and carry it like scars in your soul forever and ever. Come to Jesus now. Commit it to him and now unto him who's able to keep you from scandal and let him prevent it. I believe he'd cry and weep. I believe he'd do it. I believe the angels want you to do it. I know God wants you to do it. Why don't you do it for your own soul's sake? Let's stand together the heads back. We thank you for listening to the Making Much of Jesus podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen. And join us next time for the Making Much of Jesus podcast.